You're listening to Nostalgia Be Damned. Boys, listen to me. I'll fire first. I want you two to start with the officers and work your way down. Can you tell the difference? Yes, father. Yes, father. Good. What did I tell you fellas about shooting? Aim small, miss small. Aim small, miss small. Hello everybody, my name is Zach. I'm Brandon. And you're listening to another episode of Nostalgia Be Damned, the show where we take some of your favorite movies that you watched growing up, the ones you're nostalgic about, and we view them objectively, let you know, are these movies any good, or are you just blinded by nostalgia? This week we watched 2000's historical action drama, The Patriot. Oh, happy 4th of July. Well, happy 5th of July, Brandon. I We did this... A week late, as we are wont to do on this podcast. We don't really do any sort of great planning. Uh, and naturally, on like July 2nd, I was like, we should do The Patriot. And then. Also, a movie I'm not sure how many kids watched growing up. I, I mentioned that to someone in passing that we were doing this movie, and they were like, you watched The Patriot as a kid? <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah, I watched The Patriot <laughs> as a kid. The Patriot was one of my first violent movies, I think I ever really saw i saw it on hbo i think it was between this and gladiator yes we're just the two movies that i remember growing up at like kind of a young age where i was really taken aback by some of the gore that i was seeing and we'll get into some of the more gruesome parts of this movie but the one that always stuck out to me was the guy losing his head because he got hit by a cannon holy Um, shit that scene dude yeah and that just kind of like it stuck with me and it sparked this interest not only i think in war movies but also in history for me um i think a lot of like dad guys say this but i really do enjoy history and this movie well not exactly 100 percent historically accurate can get your interest going in a time in this country that we look at you know, good or bad as as the kickoff to what we are today. Yeah, for such a monumental piece of American history, it's there aren't a lot of movies about the American Revolutionary War. Honestly, this was kind of my go-to until I saw John Adams, I think, after graduation, which is fucking amazing, by the way. John Adams is one of the best miniseries ever. What's the deal with Paul Giamatti? What is the deal with Paul Giamatti, Zach? Uh, that was almost the name of this podcast when I was using a Paul <laughs> Giamatti podcast. <laughs> oh my god, it's a wonder he's not in this movie, honestly. He I can believe fit. he's not. Yeah, he seems like he should be a, a perfect fit for one of these colonialists uh, soldiers, but for me, yeah, it's a history movie, it stars Mel Gibson, so you better fucking believe my dad was super into it growing <laughs> up, and so I think I saw this at 10 years old on VHS, and it was one of the few war movies I actually enjoyed, because honestly, growing up, westerns and war movies, I really disliked. Really? Now, in my adult years, I love those two genres. Honestly, they're two genres that I've been finding myself going back to more and more uh, as I get older. I've not always been a big western. I like some of the newer westerns, like Hostels we talked about the other day, or or the uh, Coen Brothers True Grit. 310 to Yuma. Yeah, spaghetti westerns were not my thing. Still aren't. I, I still can't get into spaghetti westerns, those kind of movies. But war movies have always held kind of an interesting place in my heart. Um, I, I, I always think back to, obviously, Saving Private Ryan, who the writer of this movie also wrote. 
Um, we'll get into that, I'm sure. And then, mo- and then other movies like Wind Talker, uh, this movie Gladiator, Hearts um, War. I was gonna say Hearts Hearts <laughs> War. Um, what was the Mel Gibson movie? There was another. Mel we were Gibson soldiers. Movie. We were soldiers. Um, yep. That yep. that movie. Oof. So, I, but a, again, if we look back to my love of those kind of movies. I think it stems from this one right here, The Patriot, because this was the first one that I saw, again, on HBO, and blew my fucking mind. Yeah, this is actually somehow our third Roland Emmerich movie, as well as our third movie starring Mel Gibson. We completely forgot, dude, we did Signs. And you know what? I remembered we had covered Signs. I remembered we did Signs. Yeah, but we had talked about it last time. We were, for some reason, just forgot that we had covered a movie in which he actually appeared live action, because we had also mentioned we did cover Chicken Run, which was the same year as this oh, movie, yeah, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I remembered when he started to not cry. Every time I see Mel Gibson trying not to cry in a movie, I'm reminded of him shoveling fucking mashed potatoes in his mouth on that that signs dinner scene, dude. That's right. I feel like we also have to disclaimer, even though we've done three Mel Gibson movies, not a big fan of Mel Gibson today. (laughs) You know what I mean? That is correct. Uh, And in case you need a quick reminder, Roland Emmerich is the man responsible for Ghost Chase, Moon 44, Universal Soldier, Stargate. We covered Independence Day. Then he did Godzilla. We covered that. Then he made The Patriot. So that's three of his films in a row chronologically that we've covered. And Zach, I guarantee you we will be covering his next film, which was The Day After Tomorrow at some point on this podcast. I I thought I kind of thought we already had. He also did 10,000 BC, 2012, Anonymous, White House Down, Stonewall, Independence Day Resurgence, and his most recent film, also a war drama, Midway, last year. Yeah, I didn't see that one either. I gotta say, man, I gotta say, on that whole list of movies that he's done, I think there's maybe two of them that I like. <laughs> there are only two of those that have a positive score on Rotten Tomatoes. This being one, and Independence Day being one, just barely. This has a 61% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 7.2 on IMDb. It actually opened the same weekend as The Perfect Storm, which turned out to be a massive hit that no one saw coming. The Patriot actually Love expected to beat Storm. it by quite a bit. Yeah, we should also cover that movie at some point, too. We should cover that movie. That's great. Yeah, and, and people thought this was going to make much more than that, but people fucking loved Marky Mark on a boat, and reportedly... Gibson actually turned down George Clooney's role in that movie to do this one. I, You know, I feel like that's a toss-up. I'm just trying to picture Mel Gibson doing a Boston accent, and I don't like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have. film was a huge gamble. It cost $110 million to make. It barely made back its budget in the States, earning $113 million domestically, but $215 million worldwide. I'm going to say this right now, $110 million budget. Granted, it is back... You know, sometime so 110 million today is not 110 million a long time ago, but 110 million considering what they did with this movie, that's pretty fucking impressive. It's all on the screen, man. That's for sure. Every dollar. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. It finished 19th for the year at the box office, uh, just ahead of another Mel Gibson movie, Chicken Run, at number 20, and number five that year was What Women Want. We were fucking Gaga for Gibson in 2000. Oh my god. Well. <sighs> Listen, man, I think we were Gaga for Gibson for a while up until just <laughs> after The Passion of the Christ. The man is no stranger to war movies because, again, he had starred in Air America with Iron Man, also won some Oscars for Braveheart and would go on, like we mentioned, to make a pretty decent Vietnam movie. Uh, we were soldiers, I think, in 2002. And then, of course, we nominated for Best Director a few years ago for Hacksaw Ridge, which I also like. Yeah. And despite this movie not getting glowing critical praise, it was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Sound, Best Cinematography, and Best Score. 
Lost Sound to Gladiator and Cinematography and Score to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Ah. Uh, and, you know, for those with no backstory on this movie, we're going to be kind of brief as we go through the actual historical inaccuracies and whatnot going through the movie. Because, uh, again, it's two hours and 45 fucking minutes long. We did not know that going in. Yeah. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a solid 2.15. I knew it was at least <laughs> two hours. I was not expecting that extra 45. For those with no backstory on this movie, it's the story of an American col- uh, colonist named Benjamin Martin, who was swept into the Revolutionary War when his family is affected. Now, Benjamin Martin is not a real historical figure. He's essentially a composite or amalgamation of sorts of four factual figures, Andrew Pickens, Francis Marion, Daniel Morgan, and Thomas Sumter. The film has received quite a bit of criticism for this portrayal, as historians believe they pretty much got each of those figures wrong in some way or another, but most of the ire due to the similarities between Martin and Francis Marion, also known as the Swamp Fox, who historians largely consider a serial rapist who killed Native Americans for fun. He was an awful person. Pretty glorified here. It's also worth mentioning uh, the writer of this movie, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, Brandon, if you've got it, drew a lot of criticism for this movie because of their portrayal of British soldiers and the atrocities that they were committing. In fact, a lot of British people, from what I've read, Brandon, do not like that Roland Emmerich kind of makes the British soldiers out like Nazis, essentially, in this movie. It's, it's, this movie does not do a good job at portraying both sides of a war that you'll sometimes see in more serious war movies that, you know, there are two sides to a war. Uh, generally, the only one where the enemy doesn't get the benefit of the doubt is World War II, <laughs> the Germans. But usually you'll see a war movie kind of like humanize both sides. This is not the case. Uh, the British are portrayed as monsters in this movie, which, you know, historically there were war crimes on both sides, but they were not, you know, burning down churches filled with people to smoke out one (laughs) marksman in the militia. Yeah. I mean, events that had virtually no factual basis littered throughout this movie. Yeah. Robert Rodat is the uh, gentleman's name, by the way, the writer who also did. Yeah. Saving Private Ryan. Thank you. Yeah. You know, that's not to say the film is without historical authenticity. In fact, the production and costume designers painstakingly recreated the time period, and I think it shows. In fact, this is the first time the Smithsonian Institution ever worked directly on the production of a movie. Um, So in that sense, I think the time and setting, really good recreation there. The costumes, the sets in this movie, and the props are all fantastic. Yes. This movie, without even diving into it so far... Right off the bat, we can just say, I think this movie is beautiful. Yeah, worthy of the best cinematography nomination for sure. And the score, which is, I think, John Williams. Beautiful score. Correct, John Williams, yeah. The film also drew some criticism from other filmmakers like Spike Lee, who was actually furious the film, I mean, whitewashed history by essentially ignoring slavery because the character in this, Benjamin Martin, if this were any sense of a realistic story, wouldn't have hired help like he has in the movie in which he's paying free black men to work as laborers. It does feel very shoehorned that they have to mention at one point he, that the black people working on his farm are not slaves. Like, they go out of their way to make sure we know that. And, I mean, let's face it, that, you know, South Carolina plantation, that's not the case. Yeah, I understand why they did it to make the hero more heroic, but even Gibson himself remarked, I think it would have made him a slaveholder. Not to seems kind of a cop-out. Some interesting (sighs) 
interesting insight from you one some of words the there, more, <laughs> Mr. Uh, Gibson. Oh, I'm not even going to go there yet. And uh, some casting alternatives. Actually, Joshua Jackson, Elijah Wood, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Brad Renfro all considered to play Gabriel Martin, the son. Mm. It eventually came down to Heath Ledger and friend of the podcast, Ryan Phillippe, Zach. Whew. Ooh, wow. Could you imagine my Ben Philippi in this role? <laughs> Ew, dude. Gross. But we get Heath Ledger, the late Heath Ledger. We do. And and he was actually ready to quit acting after starring in 10 Things I Hate About You because all of the jobs, all of the offers after that were all just teen heartthrobs and he didn't want to do it anymore. But getting cast in this role convinced him to stay in acting. So. Which is crazy because he's a teen heartthrob in this movie. Oh, what a hunk, dude. Oh, my God. He looks great. And uh, really, it seems the only other man considered for the role of Benjamin Martin was the first to turn it down. Harrison Ford first offered and declined, calling the film too violent and said that it boiled the American Revolution down to one guy wanting revenge. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, fair criticism. Not wrong. Fair criticism. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, the last little bit of trivia here is actually kind of fascinating. The film was involved in a bizarre false review controversy. So as we mentioned, reviews for The Patriot, mixed to favorable, but one reviewer, David Manning of the Ridgefield Press, a small town newspaper in Connecticut, fucking loved it. Turned out that guy didn't actually exist. David Manning, sometimes called Dave, was a pseudonym used by a marketing executive around July 2000 to give consistently good reviews for releases from Sony subsidiary Columbia Pictures. This fake critic even appeared on a radio segment promoting the film, and his voice was provided by a computer voice synthesizer. An investigation revealed he wasn't a real critic, around the same time as an announcement that Sony had used employees posing as moviegoers in television commercials to praise the Patriots. (laughs) These were just employees being like, dude, fucking love the Patriot. Great movie, dude disgusting Uh. sony if you want good reviews for your movie just call me i will do it for money (laughs) these occurrences raise questions and controversy about ethics and movie marketing practices the other movies praised hollow man vertical limit a knight's tale and this is the one that tipped it off the animal that Uh, (laughs) the animal oh when you become a schneider soldier in print dude everyone knows A Knight's Tale, though, movie we've covered. Go back to yeah, the archives. Yeah. Check that out. And uh, Vertical Limit, we probably will, co- will cover. Hollow Man, we have a complete ban on because I chose Stuart Little. So unfortunately, we have yeah. to go the rest of you the run pick, of this podcast never of knowing what we thought of Hollow Man. I'm sorry, <laughs> you folks. You got to pick one of them. Yeah, and you pick Stuart Little. <laughs> All right. Well, to begin, man, the Patriot was rated R for strong war violence. And boy, howdy, does it have some. Ooh, does not hold back. No, it doesn't. All right. So just to be real with everyone, I was about to put in my Blu-ray of this when I noticed it was the extended cut at the top. And then I was like, hang on a second. So I looked at the back and it said 174 minutes. Then I looked on Netflix where this is streaming two hours and 45 minutes. That means there's an out. There's a fucking two there's hour another. and 54 minute cut of this movie out there. What? I was appealed. I could not what, go through what it. What could so. possibly be in there that wasn't I don't know. In the normal cut? I have to know. Maybe a fart. Maybe a fart, Zach, because let's be honest, not a, zero not a single the fart joke. This. And I had it in my head that there might have been one, like maybe one like training <laughs> montage fart. No, not a single fart in this. So already off to a bad start. But thankfully, some YouTubers. Oh, yeah. This was great. <laughs> I went on YouTube because I was trying. I was. I got it in my head before I even started that there was a fart joke in this movie. So I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it. But some YouTubers edited <laughs> <laughs> farts to uh to scenes of the patriot um 
I highly recommend it. Hug. <laughs> just, just look up yeah, the Patriot that- fart scene. <laughs> Oh my gosh, there's at least three separate videos. I'm so glad. (laughs) So, the opening line of the movie, Zach, I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost is more than I can bear. Kind of sums up Mel Gibson's career and his mistakes along the way, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Oh boy. But we're introduced to the Martin family, and this cast of kids is a veritable who's who of nostalgia be damned returners, man. God damn, seriously. So we've got Thomas Martin, that's played by small soldiers Gregory Smith. Ew. There's Heath Ledger, obviously, Gabriel Martin. Amazing. Yeah, Jurassic Park 3's Trevor Morgan as Nathan Martin. Ugh. Ew. We've got Logan Lerman, fucking Percy Jackson himself, as William Martin, the youngest boy. <laughs> Didn't know that one, actually, so thank you. <laughs> While Mika Borum plays the oldest daughter, Margaret Martin, she was in Jack Frost. Also, she played little Charlize Theron in Mighty Joe Young. <laughs> God damn. I know all these motherfuckers we've seen before. This is a fucking child actor nostalgia be damn all-star team. (laughs) And then there's the youngest daughter, Sarah, whom I don't know. Anyway, we're introduced to our lead character, our patriot, if you will, Benjamin Martin, Mel Gibson, and he can't make a fucking chair to save his life, dude. I hope this comes back into play later. (laughs) I don't know why why this is included. Let's start trimming the fat in this movie right away. We don't need a three-minute scene of Mel Gibson failing to make a chair because it will never come back in this movie. He doesn't redeem it sets himself up his with a character. better chair. Uh, yeah. But it sets up his character as ha- a loose cannon. He's got a temper. He's throwing fucking pieces of wood like tomahawks, which he'll later do in the film. <laughs> but you know what? His family keeps him in check because he takes one look at his daughter and she shakes, his, shakes her head at him and he's like, eh, sorry. Ah. sorry. So it's South Carolina, 1776. Benjamin Martin still grieving the loss of his late wife. I didn't catch the date on the gravestone, so I'm not she sure. She died in 1773. Okay, because they've got a mess of fucking kids, and one of them can't be older than, like, five or so. So it must not yeah. have been too, too long ago. I did the math on this. So the end of the French and Indian War, which he is a veteran of, ended 13 years prior. He then had 10 years with his wife and family before she died, and then another three years. Here we are. They live on a nice little patch of land, and he's just basically meant to portray the everyman white colonist. I mean, a land, a landowner. Yeah. <laughs> he gets a letter and is called to Charleston to vote in the South Carolina General Assembly on a levy supporting the Continental Army. So he heads out there with his two sons, Gabriel and Nathan. In Charleston, he's reunited with his sister-in-law, played by Jolie Richardson. She's Charlotte Selton, his late wife's sister. I gotta say, the only costume I don't agree with in this movie. Her dresses? Yeah, uh, because, man, I'll just be upfront about it. Her tits get shown off like crazy in this movie. It is not modest at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's a real Pirates of the Caribbean corset situation going on. But the colonists are, you know, lighting King George effigies on fire in the town square. It's a lot of wig wearing, finger pointing, declaratory speeching, dude. And I'm kind of here for it. Again, I like this time period. I like the way they've set this all up. And I love what everyone's arguing in assembly. Mel Gibson being a little bitch because he doesn't want to start a war with Britain. See, to me, though, it just made me miss the John Adams miniseries because during this whole assembly thing, I was like, oh, man, I remember when, like, Adams just did, like, four episodes of just this. And I was enthralled. Uh, 
so good. Yeah. Riveting. Yeah, really good. Yeah, no, this has nothing on that. But again, it's just seen so little in, I think, you know, mainstream Hollywood filmmaking that it's just kind of, you know, it's interesting enough. No, it's, I mean, for a period piece, it really does get, do a good job of kind of capturing and summing up in a way that modern day audiences want to watch. Yeah. Um, just kind of giving you a sense of what that kind of assembly would have looked like. Yeah, and honestly, it's a Twitter feed. They're just going back and forth. <laughs> One of them stands up and he's like, well, make America great again. And it's like, well, we got to make America great first. Benjamin refuses to fight, abstains from voting. He's using the old, you know, I've got kids excuse. But does he abstain levy, or does he? He does, abstains from voting. He oh, refuses okay. to fight. And he says, I refuse to vote as well. So oh, Okay, good. I was not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> the levy passes and Gabriel joins the Continentals against his father's wishes. We then learn through some sort of voiceover in a letter to Thomas that Gabriel has learned of Charleston's fall to the British. This happens super quick. Like as soon as they leave Charleston, it's like four years later and Charleston's fallen. The Continental Army is suffering defeat after defeat. Even Aunt Charlotte had to leave her home as the war got too close, but Benjamin remains at home tending to his land. And one night, uh, the battle sounds particularly close to the Martin home. Inside, everyone's kind of sheltered, hunkered down. But Nathan, I gotta, I gotta mention, Jurassic Park three kid. He makes some pretty gross remarks at the table here. I guess it's meant to be a joke, but it's awful. He says something like, "They'll probably kill the men and do God knows what to you women." As he's looking at his sisters and the help. Jesus. Yeah, he looks at like his very young sisters. Ew. <laughs> Ew, Nathan. Ew. But out of the darkness comes Gabriel, wounded, bloodied from battle. Apparently, over about. 200 men were killed in a fight nearby, and the British dragoons are getting closer. So Mel goes outside to find the army literally battling on his front fucking lawn. And uh, it cuts to the next morning. More British soldiers advance upon the house as they're caring for uh, wounded troops. And the first soldier up the steps, who thanks Benjamin for caring for his majesty's soldiers, is a guy named Graham Wood. I actually work with this guy here in California. He's a super nice guy. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, nice. Did you talk to him about this at all? I've talked, when I first met him, uh, he brought up like he was in a couple of movies, and this was one. I was like, oh, no shit, I completely forgot till I was watching it now. And I was like, oh, fuck, that's great. Graham, call us, man. We, we'd, love to hear, we'd love to hear about this scene. Very nice guy. But 27 minutes in, we're introduced to our villain, Jason Isaacs, as Colonel Will. William Tabington. Oof. Did they really lay heavy on the British villains in this? Because the guy who plays General Cornwallis, I can't uh, remember his name off the top of my head. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Tom Wilkinson. Yeah, Tom Wilkinson. He plays a lot of great British villains, too. And this guy, and fucking, now I'm, I, I, all of when I see when I watch this movie now is like, oh, Mel Gibson's fighting <laughs> Draco Malfoy's father now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Tabington played by Jason Isaacs. He's based on a historical figure, Tarleton, I believe, whom historians suggest were, there was no evidence painting him as this butcher or child murderer. But again, this is 2000s The Patriot, and this guy's fucking awful. Yeah. He sees that he's harboring rebel dispatches as well as soldiers, so he orders the house to be burned, the free black men working the land to be forced into the British army. He also orders the livestock to be destroyed and then have Gabriel hanged as a spy. So Thomas, like an idiot, runs after him and gets shot in the back and killed by Tavington. What was he hoping to accomplish here? Dude, I don't know. Like, the, the boys in this family are all, like, really headstrong. You know what I mean? Like, they just yeah. act without thinking. And they're all supposed to be like, oh, just like their dad. But, like, he runs after him because it seems as though he's pissed that his dad's not doing anything. He seems like his dad's bitching out here and used his family as a defense for not fighting in the war. And now he's not going to do anything that his brother's getting hung. But come on, kid. I mean, you got to think about what you're doing. But he dies. 
the barn gets set on fire and Mel Gibson rushes back in and grabs his military paraphernalia and decides to take fucking action. That's right. Grabs his tomahawk, too, tells the girls to hide in the fields, and he and his sons take off into the woods to murder some Brits. He gives his sons two guns, too. I like this whole bit here, honestly, of, of the guerrilla warfare in the woods and shit. As a kid, this was my favorite part of the movie, and I still think it, while unbelievable, it holds up in, in terms of it just being really exciting. Like, he tells his son to start with the officers, work your way down, reload for your brother, aim small, miss small. <laughs> it is intense because the first, I don't know, half hour of this movie has been... You know, like fighting from a distance and very like, oh, patriotic and, oh, this is the birth of the nation. And then this is when this movie finally does that line of coke and fucking kicks into high gear. <laughs> yep. And yeah, nice firefight ensues where they're shooting them from up uh, up higher ground behind trees and shit. And then it gets a bit unrealistic as all hell when he runs down with his tomahawk and starts slashing throats and no one can take a shot off at yeah. this guy. But it's cool. One guy he goes fucking buck wild on. Do you remember this, all the blood spray and shit? Because this part was kind of yeah. not scarring as a kid, but it, it stood out as a, oh my God. This is, I picture this just being like one of your first experiences with violent movies and just Mel Gibson <laughs> stands up absolutely drenched in blood. Like, I didn't really know what to think. Uh, he, he lets one of the privates live, you know, to tell the tale to Tavington. And because it was only one man, they give him the nickname, The Ghost. Ooh. That's where we're introduced to Adam Baldwin for a quick second. I just want to mention him because he's introduced as sort of a traitor uh, now serving the British Army. He'll come back to it uh, later on. Did I ever tell you about the time I saw Stephen Baldwin in a diner? <laughs> no. When was this? Uh, this was right, like the day before my freshman year of college started. <laughs> That's how you want to begin I your college moving, career. I was moving, yeah, I was moving into college in central New York, and uh, Stephen Baldwin was just at his di at a diner with his mom. <laughs> you didn't get a picture, Nate? No, I stared at him, and I was like, oh, that's Stephen Baldwin, and then I lived the rest of my life. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, Benjamin goes home, he collects the children, and heads to Aunt Charlotte's house. And that night, Nathan... You know, Trevor Morgan, he has a real American psycho moment because at first you think maybe he's feeling guilty, brought on by the fact that he just murdered half a dozen men. But no, he even says to his father, no, I'm glad. I'm glad I killed all those men. And he seems like to be relishing in the violence as he goes to bed. It's, it's a creepy moment for that kid. Cool, dude. <laughs> Gabriel decides it's time for him to join back up with the army. So he sets off and the next morning, Benjamin follows. He meets up with him. They sort of watch the battle from a distance. And war tactics in this time have always blown my mind. Whenever I see it portrayed on screen, I just cannot understand the rationale behind some of it. <laughs> it is. I've done, like I said, I, I've done a bit of reading on, on this war. And it just, like, that was just the time. Like, it was. And the, it's something that gets brought up in this movie a lot is, like, oh, like, the gentlemanly yeah. way of fighting. That was a real thing. That was, like, a thing where this was really, like, a test of your balls. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> if, you if you guys are brave enough to fucking stand up and fight. Because, honestly, when you look at it, the, ch you know, the chances of you getting shot, they would march in with, like, 2,000 people and maybe like 400 would die on the battlefield. Now, a lot more would get injured and, you know, or mortally wounded. But like the chances of you really getting hit were not huge. So it was really just like who can scare the other one off. 
Yeah, because it's just wave after wave, and I, I guess I love it's fascinating, fascinating to me. But I would hate to yeah. be the guy out there fucking drumming, pumping up my brother to fight with no gun on. Yeah, <laughs> this also though was the scene, and this is what just like this is the moment I remember from this movie because the Americans are marching into battle. They're going gun to gun with the British, which is a bad idea because the British were notoriously like the most famous line infantry ever. And one guy gets a fucking bouncing (laughs) cannonball (laughs) Cannonball. (laughs) straight to the dome and completely takes off his head. And that has always stuck with me. Yeah, that's fucking insane. We get a few scenes of of good gore, and that's definitely the one that probably takes the cake. There's another one later at the end of this movie where another bouncing cannonball takes off like five guys' leg. Like (laughs) five guys just like instantly lose their leg, and it's like this the Omaha Beach scene where someone's like lifting their leg up off the ground. Yeah, it's strange because I'm kind of torn between whether or not Roland Emmerich is glamorizing violence or making it look cool. Or if he's just trying not to sanitize the war, which you also don't want in your movies. So it's kind of like a, a Michael Bay Pearl Harbor where it's like, I don't know how far you're exploiting this. Or is it a Saving Private Ryan? I want to put you in the situation of what it would be like to be in this war. You know, I think this movie does a little bit of both. I think it yeah. in some of these scenes, especially the line battles where you just seen guys drop or guys getting blown up by cannonballs. I think that kind of makes sense because that's, you know what it would have looked like. And I think it's uh, it's such a weird battle tactic for us to really think about what that might look like in real life. Yeah. So I think it does a good job with that. But then there are some scenes, especially where, you know... Like slow motion sword, blade fights. Yeah, so, <laughs> slow motion blade fights and, you know, guys getting shot at, like directly in the mouth or something like that. That's when it's like... Okay, like that, maybe you're pushing it a little bit, but I I actually err more on the side of, I think it's more historically accurate for the most part. I do agree. I do agree for the most part. And uh, we meet Benjamin's former commanding officer, Colonel Harry Burwell, Cooper Scooper. Amazing. Not Bradley Cooper, Chris Cooper. Love this guy. We also meet French Major Jean Villeneuve, who's helping train the militia and is also promising more French aid eventually. But Burwell makes uh, Benjamin Colonel of the local colonial militia due to his, you know, his combat experience and also places Gabriel under Benjamin's command. And Cornwallis in this movie, yeah, we mentioned he was played by Tom Wilkinson. He's also kind of at first at odds with uh, Jason Isaacs. Tavington, because Tavington is a little too rough, a little too brutal with the colonialists. And at first, Cornwallis is pissed because once the war is over, you know, these guys are going to have to be brothers in commerce again. He doesn't want to completely destroy everyone. Um, So at first, he comes to his side, though, later on. I read a great article about um, how the Revolutionary War was like a PR nightmare for the British. (laughs) Oh, I bet. Because, yeah, they like some of these things were happening where but they had to try and rein it in because they're like, we have to rule over this land once we get it settled down. But they still, you know, had the occasional like ransacking of a town because they just didn't have food and supplies because they were fighting a war thousands of miles away from their homeland. So it just it was a tough situation for them. So it's crazy to me, the optics of this war. 
Meanwhile, Gabriel has had this crush on this young woman, Anne, in their town. This is a whole subplot that could probably be cut, honestly. Uh, dude, I fast-forwarded through, like, most of this because I just, I, and, like, I don't feel like I missed anything. Although I did have a huge crush on, crush on this actress. Oh, she's beautiful. beautiful. Yes, for sure. And so he goes to church to kind of convince more men to join the cause. And it somehow ends in her basically guilting everyone into joining the war. <laughs> Even the reverend yeah. joins the army. Uh, who, by the way, is the drama teacher in It's Always Sunny. That's right. There's another recruitment scene at a bar where he enlists some more fucking patriots. One of them in the bar didn't want to fight, so he sends his slave in his place, a gentleman by the name of Okam, who I actually grow to like this character and his relationship with Donald Logue, who we've seen, I think, in Reindeer Games, dude? That's right. (laughs) We get a few quick montages of the colonialists employing some guerrilla warfare tactics. More and more soldiers start joining their cause because they're straight out slaughtering redcoats. In one ambush... Some Brits call out to surrender, but Benjamin and his men stab them to death regardless, which pisses off Gabriel because, you know, and the French, because they don't want to be as cruel as their enemy, you know? And he also brings up some past event in which Benjamin and his men slaughtered some French at Fort Wilderness. It's become sort of a local legend, but we'll hear more about that later. It's it's one of those things where, like, it's almost a joke that, like, he gets asked, like, three times in the movie, like, what happened at Fort Wilderness? And then on the fourth time, he finally answers. <laughs> Again, like Will Ferrell in uh, Austin Powers, the spy of Shagman. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. After this ambush, they retrieve some redcoat uniforms, weapons, and General Cornwallis's journal. That's when we also get some more back and forth between him and Tavington. It's this South Carolina ball on this plantation. Just as they're talking about this ghost leader and how Tavington's brutality has swelled the opposition's rank, Gibson and the boys are dressed up as British soldiers, they're unloading a cargo ship of supplies, and then they blow it the fuck up. Classic prank, dude. These guys, this is begins their prank war with the with the British soldiers. Are you ready for the summer? <laughs> it's a real heavyweight situation up yeah. there. Gabriel then meets back up with Anne, and this part blew my mind. He's sewn up into a bag, so he goes there to stay with her for the night, and obviously her parents don't want them fucking, yeah. so he, they, he is sewn into a bag so that... He can't escape and fuck. Yeah, he gets like a mummified sleeping bag. Yeah. And the father is like listening outside and the mother's like, oh, don't worry. Like I sewed it extra tight, tighter than my father sewed mine or whatever. Like it's implied that she escaped his or I mean, he escaped his when he was younger and got some of that ass, dude. What do you think? Did Heath Ledger get out and they fucked? Oh, they probably fucked. I know there's that funny joke, like, whatever she feeds him, the tea or something, is stained his teeth, and then she has some stained teeth, so it's clear that they at least made out, dude, tonsil hockey. Yeah, well, they freaking digging into each other's necks in the next scene when they're all leaving. (laughs) That's true. They are necking hard, dude. Oakum, like we had mentioned, the former slave, he's played by J. Arlen Jones, and he discovers he can earn his freedom serving a year in the militia. Um, and then again, has some sort of back and forth with Donald Logue, who at first is a race, racist soldier, but will come around in the end because, you know. Because there is no racism in, in America, Brandon. <laughs> no, not post-American Revolutionary War, dude. Yeah, no, it ended after the Revolutionary War. Ugh. <sighs> the next battle, though, is pretty intense. They lose a bunch of men as they're forced to retreat when the British army sort of blindsides them. 22 dead, 18 wounded, 20 are missing, presumed captured. And that night when they're licking their wounds, we finally find out what happened at Fort Wilderness, Zach. Weep, weep, weep. Reluctantly, Ben tells him that the French had killed all the English settlers, men, women, and children, and the colonialists caught up with them at Fort Wilderness. And they took their time, supposedly cutting them apart, 
piece by piece, murdering all by two, placing their heads on pallets with the eyes, tongues, fingers. Oh my god. Sent some to the French and others to the Cherokees. Yeah. Oh and then god. they sent the and they sent the chief a rolled up fish in a in a bulletproof vest. It's a, a Sicilian say uh it's a Sicilian <laughs> message. Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. Yeah, and someone woke up with a horse head in their bed, right, at some point? Yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. And better better movie. Well, yeah, of course. But, I mean, <laughs> this is a, I mean, it's a crazy dark story. Again, I don't know how much this actually is historically accurate. but Well, so, again, there were, you know, atrocities on both sides of the war. Especially, yes, of course. Right, we don't have to get into the atrocities that colonialists Oh God, you know, no! You don't want to listen Native to two Americans. assholes. Yeah, you don't want to listen to two white guys talk about this. Yeah, but, if you want to listen to our thoughts on Free yeah. Willy, we'll we'll let you know about that. Yeah, we'll talk to you about <laughs> Free Willy and Independence Day and that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! But yeah, but Benjamin reveals he's sort of been consumed by guilt because of it, and it's at that moment that they get word that their fellow soldiers, including the Reverend, are about to be hung at a nearby British fort. So Benjamin rides up, white flag in tow. And it's brought before General Cornwallis. One of my favorite scenes, by the way. Yeah, this I, is like, great. I, just, I really do like this scene. It's such a strange way of, again, in modern warfare or the, the context that we have of how battles are fought, especially more recently with the Afghanistan war, things like that. It just doesn't even strike you as a possibility that these two opposing sides would be able to meet, have like a cordial conversation without any sort of harm being uh, threatened or anything like that. It, I like the idea of them being polite at a time of war. <laughs> yeah, like, although it is telling that the first thing that Cornwallis asks about, because the first thing he says is, yeah, I want to file a grievance with you, which is just fucking insane that, like, you meet up with your enemy and you're like, okay, I got some issues here. Can we talk about this? <laughs> it's like meeting with HR. Um, but so it, it is telling, though, that he's like, you know, like, I, I had clothes and I had, like, some furniture that you guys stole and I'd really like that back. And he's like, okay, fine. He's like, also, I need you to stop shooting my men. It's the second thing he brings up. <laughs> um, but he specifically mentions, like, you can't be shooting officers because officer, you know, without officers, there would be chaos because we would lose control of the men, which is fucking insane <laughs> to think about. But, I mean whatever but you know the the whole back and forth here is like well you know your officers are burning down f fucking settlements like <laughs> you you can go to hell and killing men you know who are wounded yeah the the idea is to set up a prisoner exchange because cornwallis doesn't know that gibson has 18 of britain's soldiers at gunpoint and gives cornwallis a little telescope to prove it the prisoners are then released and as he's leaving with his men tabington tries to taunt him with a little Oh, was that your stupid boy I killed back there on the farm? And then we get a pretty good, I think, trailer line was like, before this war is over, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. It was the Taken line before cell phones. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> Gibson was scary, dude. Yeah, and it's then revealed that the British officers were actually fucking scarecrows in redcoats. Cl another classic prank. <laughs> it is. They're, they're just a, a couple of American pranksters, man. Yeah. This is a fucking, what a fucking blue-collar country this ends up being. And Cornwallis is super insulted by, you know, this clever ploy to free some of the captured militia. So he orders, or rather reluctantly allows Tabington to stop Benjamin by any means necessary. I'm not even going to look, dude, and I promise you, you won't be punished. So, Tavington questions Adam Baldwin for info on Benjamin Martin, specifically, where is he hiding his children? 
So the Brits head off to the plantation in search of his family. Uh, This is Charlotte's house, and it's a real, you know, inglorious bastard situation with them hiding under the floor. Eventually, her house is set on fire. The slaves are killed, and that's when Gabriel, Benjamin, and his men managed to rescue the family while others created distraction. And they safely escaped, while... Unfortunately, Tavington learns the identities of some militia members and attacks their families and burns their homes. This is one fucking rough scene here when Mm. they all kind of arrive at that home and one of the guys finds his son and wife murdered and his home burned down. So he just decides to end it all right there and shoots himself in the head. He's like the most likable militia guy in the entire movie and he shoots himself in the head. It is, you know, some of the writing and storytelling in this is pretty gut-wrenching. Yeah, this is a super powerful scene and... The militia is kind of given one week off to tend to their families. Benjamin finally reunited with his children. His youngest daughter, Susan, is just now beginning to speak, and all she can muster is, I fucking hate you, Dad. <laughs> Minus the fucking part. <laughs> but yeah, she's, you know, she's, he's never heard his daughter speak before, and she hates his, like, that's the first thing he hears out of her. They're saying at this place with, uh, this kind of outpost with a bunch of former slaves or freed laborers, and... This begins kind of a strange part where him and Charlotte are sleeping next to each other and she gives him some, like, love me eyes so we know where this is headed. Because as we all know, Zach, Mel Gibson knows what women want. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's kind of doing the Deadwood thing where he's like, you know, his sister-in-law. Yeah, I I mean, Gabriel gets married to Anne. Kind of more bullshit. I don't really need this. Again, it's just stretching more this fast two-hour forward 40. And, <laughs> Fast forward it through it. Man, I, I, I won't lie to you. Like Some of these parts that are just like filler because half of this movie, well, more than half of this movie, I'd say three-quarters of this movie is like a pretty solid war drama going on. Yes. And then the other quarter of the movie is just bullshit melodrama that I just don't give a fuck about. And, you know, normally I'd be able to put up with that in a 90-minute film, Brandon. Yeah. This is, but I mean, we're pushing two two hours and forty five minutes. I just like I can't be bothered with it. I, I had to write one of the lines down here because it sucks. Charlotte is sitting down, and Benjamin approaches, and he's like, "Can I sit?" And she replies, "It's a free country, or at least it will be." <laughs> Ew. Oh, I did fast forward through, but I do remember that line. It's probably the worst line in the movie. <laughs> Right, like oh it has gosh. to be, right? Is There's there a, couple, a better nomination? I, I was going to say, there are a couple of those times in the movie where it's like trying to be cute about about our country's very violent history. Wouldn't it be weird if New York turned into a bunch of skyscrapers? What's a, <laughs> what's a pizza? Uh, but either way, it's enough to get a kiss because they deep smooch, which must be super weird for the kids the next morning as he's yeah, kissing their aunt goodbye, but whatever. Susan refuses to let him go, refuses to let him hug her, rather. And because uh, she's straight up sick of his shit. But as he's leaving, she's crying, Papa, don't go. I'll do anything. Can't watch this scene. It's sad. Oh yeah. Oh, my God. It gets me every single fucking time. It's heartbreaking. This is a good child actress. Very good child actress. He promises to come back. The mil- It's been a week, so the militia reconvenes. They expect only three at first, but soon more and more men arrive. O comes there. So is the Reverend, the French major. And, uh... After they've gone, Colonel Tavington arrives and wishes to speak to the whole village, including Anne and her father. It's here that this entire event is <laughs> made up for this movie, but it, it's a, it is horrific. The church is barricaded and set on fire, killing everyone inside, man, woman, child. It's 
Wow. Again, I, I'm sure some of our British listeners, of which we have many, um, <laughs> do not do not like this movie because it like this is some real like 1940s Germany shit. Yeah. That just like there's really no evidence based around. The, I mean, yes, there was some ransacking and some looting and pillaging in the Revolutionary War, but like for by means of just like we're gonna slaughter an entire town just to get some information on one dude uh, that didn't happen yeah and it's like just twisting the knife the fucking filmmakers at this point because it's like this this didn't need to happen for us to already hate the british and then i guess it's supposed to give the motivation to gabriel because then once he realizes that his wife's been killed and this whole town's been murdered you know he sets off to avenge her then they go ahead and kill him, which is, like, another reason to, like, Jesus Christ, how bad do you want me to feel, guys? It's like a fucking George R.R. R. Martin book. <laughs> like, don't get attached to anybody in this yeah, movie. Yeah, it's because it's never-ending. Yeah. Gabriel races off to attack Tavington's encampment. There's, like, a little shoot-off by a nearby crick, which, by the way, Tavington, luscious, full head of hair. All these oh, guys. Yeah, yeah, oh, my God. Even Gibson himself rocking a man bun. Yeah, his freaking mop looks great. Yeah, but during the attack, the Reverend is shot and killed. Tavington's then shot by Gabriel, but then pulls a real possum move, pretends to be dead for a bit, and then fatally stabs Gabriel at the last minute in a very prolonged death. Oh, my God. But fuck. And then, uh, yeah, Benjamin has to find him, so he's got to watch yet another one of his kids die in his arms, and we get another Mel Gibson is not going to cry scene. But finally, the dam breaks, man, and he sheds some manly tears. That this this is a bummer. This doesn't make me cry. Like there's some scenes in this movie that I cry over. Again, his child begging him not to go to war. A couple of the deaths. This one, eh, you know, I I miss Heath Ledger, but that's okay. <laughs> I I don't think it's quite as impactful after the last like three heartbreaking scenes because right before this we get. A guy committing suicide after his family slaughtered. A little girl begging her father not to go to war. It's like the second thing she's ever said to him. And then a church of, full of innocent people burning down. I mean, killing Heath Ledger in a battle is like nothing at this point. You're just like numb to it. You're like, okay, sure. Chark another one up on the board. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Cooper Scooper arrives to send us condolences. Yes, Benjamin, you know, justify their deaths by fighting with them. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like the meanest thing that he comes in. He's sti- he's sitting over his dead son. <laughs> he's, he's sitting over his dead son and he comes in. He's like, you know, I got a kid on the way. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my God, dude. Yeah. It's the most fucked up thing ever. It's so rude. It's at that moment we do get a call back to the opening line, Zach. That's called good script writing, by the way. Bringing it full oh, circle. Yeah. But Benjamin refuses to fight any longer. He's done. Until he finds an American flag in his son's satchel bag repaired by Gabriel. And it's then he's reminded of his son's dedication to the cause that he returns to the army. And then as if it's directly out of Braveheart, (laughs) Mel Gibson comes in riding a horse holding his country's flag. There's no speech really, so that's kind of (laughs) good. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say he actually, I don't think, gives a speech before any battle in this movie the best i mean the best thing we get before a speech is just like hey uh tomorrow's gonna suck (laughs) that's true he doesn't give a heroic speech of any kind in this movie from what i'm remembering no there is a nice little moment before this big battle with donald logan okam it's because again it's been more than 12 months and he's decided to stay on his own accord and donald is honored to be fighting by his side oh dude our country 
mending its wounds. Oh, racism's over. One thing that we do have to mention before we get into this big battle is that they're trying to plan around... They're meeting the British in the field, and they're trying to plan around how the tactics, and Mel Gibson suggests lead, having his militia front and center and <laughs> leading the charge against the British, uh, which scares the regulars because, they've seen, you know, militia are just like farmers. They're not trained soldiers. So sending them... I mean, the idea that they would do this in real life is absurd. Yeah, it's it's like putting your you know your JV team in at the Super Bowl, you know. Exactly. <laughs> it's like that South Park episode where the Pee Wee hockey team plays the Detroit <laughs> the Detroit Red Wings. <laughs> but man, oh man, this battle, man, it is really well shot. The choreography, oh the sequencing of it, these armies march toward each other, firing in ways, reloading. Dude, every time a musket Whew. goes off in this movie. It's fucking astound. It's crazy. I, I can understand why it was nominated for sound and yeah. Honestly, I think it should have gotten costumes too. I like, yeah. This movie and production is, design too. Yeah, I mean, this movie is just beautiful. It's just straight up like really appealing to look at. I think it it uh, is unfortunate. It was released the same year as Gladiator. I think Gladiator just kind of took over the real historical yeah. epic genre that year. Yeah, but. As more and more British troops arrive, Gibson and the boys start to retreat because Cornwallis wants this to end today. So he orders the battalion over the hill to crush all remaining colonialists. But they've got an entire fucking army over that hill, locked and loaded. This is pretty cool. And we get squibs galore. Nice score here. Mel Gibson killing people with guns, not firing, just smashing people with the butt of a gun. <laughs> yeah. Tavington, <laughs> Left and right. Tavington has seen him on the field and blows everything charges the cavalry like way too early <laughs> to go after. yeah yep it is it is like it's a valid criticism from Her criticism from harrison ford that like it's taking some like grand idea of like a really tone setting war and boiling it down to two guys being pissed <laughs> off at each other i guess it's better than condensing pearl harbor into a shitty love triangle but yeah it's a very similar yeah. <laughs> similar ilk <laughs> How dare you, <laughs> Michael Bay? I can't. I'm not even going to finish that sentence. But Gibson has also noticed Tavington, but he notices the line is also faltering. No retreat, though, bro. And he runs up the hill with the flag waving. That pumps everyone up. They're all turning back around to get back into the fight. And this is something I've always noticed in movies, and it's no exception here. No one aims a fucking cannonball. They're shooting these things everywhere at their own men. It doesn't matter. They don't. It's just just yeah. firing all around them. But then. In the most glamorizing of moments, this is where we get a full, I think it's five minutes of slow motion. Benjamin spotting Tavington on horseback. He starts running full tilt at him, brandishing the American flag as a harpoon. And dude, this, he stabs Tavington's horse, causing the horse to collapse its full weight on its neck, killing itself. And Tavington's then yeah. shot in the arm. They go at each other with tomahawks and swords in a slow motion blade fight. It's fucking nuts. It's, <laughs> I mean, this movie, this movie manages in some of its action sequence to say, stay pretty grounded until the last five minutes of this movie. And then it's, <laughs> it's like... It's like we got to get him one more drink before this bar closes, man. 
let's make it a double. He's eventually like thrown to his knees. We think he's about to die. And, you know, Tavington's taunting him again. Like, oh, you thought you'd kill me. I'm going to kill you, motherfucker. And just as he's about to like deliver a, a fatal blow, he turns at the last moment as the fucking American flags flying in the sunset behind him or whatever. Yep. And he does he this just, real Matrix move and just ducks under the sword. <laughs> yeah, and he just stabs him in the stomach, right in the old gut, which honestly is not a violent enough death for what has been set up. This guy did all these atrocities, and you're just going to stab him in the gut? Uh, honestly, unbelievable that he didn't get shot in the head or get chopped up by that tiny little hatchet. Yeah, or fucking Mel... I was expecting Mel Gibson to be wearing his face at the end of this movie for everything he's caused. He should have put him in a chokehold and snapped his neck yeah he should have done so there should have been so many more intimate ways of murdering this man kind of a bummer yeah. i'll say but yeah. cornwallis retreats you know the remaining soldiers celebrate and then we find out in a i always love this in movies special especially historical dramas where like a bat one battle is kind of the climax of the movie and then they have to wrap up the rest of the war with a voiceover <laughs> Uh, it's it's the just worst. like, oh, by the way, after many retreats, you know, Corl uh, Cornwallis was besieged at Yorktown, Virginia. He surrendered to the surrounding Continental Army, and the long-awaited French naval force arrived. I'll be home soon. <laughs> Dude, I, I will say this, too, though, really quick. Even though it's, like, just prolonging the inevitable in this movie, and it's super short, this Battle of Yorktown shot is pretty fucking cool. Like, I kind of yeah. wish I'd seen more of this battle, because it looks sweet. Cooper Scooper tells Benjamin he's going to name his son Gabriel as a final twist of the knife. <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry about yeah. it. <laughs> Benjamin's like, wow, what a stupid name and pieces out. Yeah. And he's like, <laughs> I hope this country fucks itself. <laughs> but he returns home with his family to the burned down homestead and their neighbors and friends are rebuilding their house. Oakum and Donald Logan there. It's a really sweet sentiment, actually. A peaceful, uplifting ending. To a brutal film. And America lived happily ever after. <laughs> the Patriot, dude. The Patriot. Uh, Ooh, you want uh, me to go first? You want? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go ahead, dude. What? What? Tell me your thoughts. Um, You know, I, I'll be honest. Going into this movie, I was expecting a lot worse. I really, this made me nervous um, because I, I think this is one of these movies that is such, it's so beloved by a lot of people because it is, you know, a story about the it's a violent war movie, which ticks a lot of boxes. And it's also very pro-America, which ticks a lot of specific boxes. Hoorah! <laughs> and, you know, exactly. And it's considered a, a super patriotic movie. Obviously, it's called The Fucking Patriot. So I was super nervous going in. I was expecting propaganda from beginning to end. And I will say majorly impressed that that is not necessarily the case in this movie there are a couple instances like you said it's not a free country it's a free country or it will be like ew or mel gibson beating the shit out of people with the american flag didn't need that um you know there are a couple instances where it is very rock flag and eagle but for the most part I'm astounded that this movie is a lot more personal and it's a lot more about family and duty than it is necessarily about fuck yeah america and, and that impresses me as for the rest of this movie i think it's acted extremely well i think everybody does i don't really take umbrage with any acting uh child or adult in this movie yeah and uh, i've said it a couple times on this podcast just to reiterate i think this movie is gorgeous i think it is beautiful to look at um the gore 
you know, it can get a little gratuitous at times, but I think for the most part is grounded in some sort of reality. From the beginning, was impressed by how much I actually enjoyed this movie, and I was not expecting to look back on this movie and think it was any good. So um, from the costumes to the sets to the sound, uh, the direction of it, I think it's all great. There are some things I take issue with, namely the melodrama and sort of the over-vilification of the British in this movie is a little unnecessary. Um, but other than that, man, I'm impressed. I think it's a way better than what critics gave it initially. I think it's an 80 easily. And I think if you like this movie growing up, there is absolutely no reason why you wouldn't like it now. <laughs> wow, dude. I'm, ex- I'm surprised you liked it as much as you did. Yeah, I, me too, man. I, I truly wasn't expecting it. I think it's a great movie. I really do. I think I think it's a good movie. I it, it's told on an epic scale, you know, with a huge budget, blockbuster pedigree. I think Roland mm. Emmerich is both its strength and its weakness. Like he's able okay. to put together these massive set pieces, elaborate choreographed battle sequences, top-notch effects, cinematography, but the story itself, you know, is ridden with clichés and contrivances. Oh, for sure, yeah. Incredibly inaccurate in terms of its representation of history and some of these real-life figures, and it's 40 minutes too fucking long. The, uh, agreed. Bit too bloated and melodramatic. But, as you said, when it's focused on the historical drama and action, it is relentless, it's exciting, it's brutal. It's much better than a Michael Bay Pearl Harbor. It is more... I can't say it's closer to Saving Private Ryan because it's not to that level of quality, in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. In terms of even Heartbreak Ridge, I think it's not up to that level, but it is. But it's close to that, I think. But as you mentioned, this is a Mel Gibson movie, so it's going to be more about family than it actually is about patriotism in general. It's funny that the movie's called The Patriot because... I mean, he starts off not even wanting to fight in the war and not really giving a fuck about this country other than the fact that it's given him a place to raise his family. And really, it all comes down to someone murdered it. It's all about revenge, really, yeah. than about love of country. So it's a strange title. Yeah, it's it's more of a it's more of a Liam Neeson film than it is. He's com- he's yeah. really compelling to watch. He delivers a good performance here, as usual, as despite our dislike of the man. He's a good fucking actor. Yeah, um, as is Jason Isaacs, who does a great job at making us hate this guy. A little broad, simple simplistic but i think it really succeeds as a big scale blockbuster as opposed to this kind of intimate character study but i i think had this maybe had a better director it could have a better director and a better script this could have been oscar worthy in more than just the technical categories but on the flip side i think if you have a worse actor here if you don't have mel gibson here you just have a generic 90s actor this turns into almost uh like direct to dvd like Chuck Norris Van Damme action movie totally, <laughs> because it's totally. it doesn't have yeah the, the heart yes the heart of an actor that even Mel Gibson can provide but so I'll I'll give it a little bit above what critics gave it I'll give it a 65 I think it's got some okay if I would give it higher if this was just based on solely the craftsmanship of the production but it is it is a bit of Hollywood propaganda but it's entertaining I gotta say interesting this is not the way that this podcast usually goes but um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, man. Maybe I was just caught up in it, but I, I, I do like it. Although I will, I will give you this. Picture this: Steven Spielberg's The Patriot. Exactly. I mean, that movie is a completely. That's probably like a Best Picture nominee. You know what I mean? Yeah, so. that's a movie that we keep talking about, but um, for sure. Yeah. But this one is on Netflix, and I do think that if you haven't seen it in a while, it's worth a watch. It's not nearly as offensive as I worried or was, oh, was worried was it would worried be about that. Yeah, was really. So worried I do about think that. it's worth a watch. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. 
Interesting. Did you watch anything though, dude? Good or bad over the week before we get into uh, it or check it out next week? Uh, so I watched Faulty Towers. Um, well, I'll, I'll say I rewatched Faulty Towers. Um, I own it, so it's I, I. You might have to look really hard if you want to stream it. But uh, John Cleese's really early sitcom only went two seasons. Uh, British BBC show considered the best sitcom of all time. Um, it's John- wait when when is this when was this? Oh, super early. This is like seventies. Oh wow! Yeah, Faulty Tower. You got to watch it. Yeah, nineteen seventy-five. Only did two seasons. I think like twelve episodes total or something like that. Um, but but a lot of people say like British television sometimes only does like two or three seasons because of this show. It is staggeringly funny. It's like one of the funniest goddamn things I've ever seen. Um, it is British humor, but like American audiences can appreciate it. There's an Amer- there's an American woman playing a British woman in it. It's just it's bananas. If you like John Cleese, if you like kind of that Monty Python sort of. It's not nearly as random, but it is fucking hysterical. You got to check out Faulty Towers, man. Ha! Huh. And you have this. You have the DVD. Uh, I think I just got it off of like YouTube or something. I just like. Oh, okay. Yeah. Damn. All right. Well, cool. Yeah, man. Yeah, definitely check that out. Well, I watched. Have you ever seen? Why did you see Why Him with James Franco and Brian Cranston? <laughs> uh, I think I saw like the first like ten minutes of that fucking movie. <laughs> I can't really recommend it, or I mean, yeah, it's not good, but you know, it's a movie that it I watched. Yeah, exactly. I just was curious if you had seen it because it was, uh, you know, an outlier. But uh, I also watched Hell Comes to Frogtown, which is Rowdy Roddy Piper uh, is the last virile man on Earth after a post in a post-apocalyptic world where he is uh, has to have like a like a chastity belt on, and there's all these frog people, and they're trying to get his seed, and he has to bang a bunch of women in order to keep the human population going. Um, I think it's on oh. Criterion Channel. Uh, okay. <laughs> ah, that one's worth a watch. I think it's on Shudder. And uh, Slumber Party Massacre is another, like, 80s kind of cheesy horror film that I checked out. Uh, you know, it's got a lot of nudity, some decent kills. You know, a lackluster villain, though, in my opinion, so... I uh, can't get the whole patented seal of approval from old Brando the Commando, but okay. I will recommend a rewatch of Top 5. Hadn't seen that in a while since it Great came movie. out. Chris Rock's Top 5. Really good movie, yeah. Really good movie. I like that movie. I think under- underrated, yeah. So, uh, Well, next week's movie, uh, critically acclaimed, actually was nominated for the Best Animated Feature of 2002. Didn't win. I believe Spirited Away won. Great movie. Really good movie. I just recently watched that. But is it better than Ice Age, Zach? <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. I mean, honestly, probably. uh, Obviously, it's better than Ice Age. (laughs) Regardless, we'll be doing Ice Age next week. (laughs) Uh, So get ready for some tired and exhausting Ray Romano impressions. Ah, man, I can't wait. Or Ray Romano's yep. brother from Everybody Loves Raymond probably get a little bit. <laughs> yep, some for some reason Brad Garrett will somehow get thrown in there. Yeah, Raymond. <laughs> We've oh, got John Ray. Leguizamo with a lisp as the Sid the Sloth in here, man. Oh, we're a, the good times. Uh, I'll lie ahead. Yeah, the real question is whether or not this will be better than Shrek. Well, Shrek is love. Shrek is life, Zach. Ew. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone, and feel free to tune in next week. If you want any of our other episodes, feel free to check out nbd.podbean.com. That's Podbean, our original hosted site. We're also on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Zach, you were mentioning a bunch of other sites and apps, right, that I didn't even know I, about. I found us on iHeartRadio the other day. <laughs> yeah, like, all right, cool. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, check us out on iHeartRadio. I don't know uh, how that's happening. If you're iHeartRadio, give us money. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love some of your money. Oh, my gosh. You know, so feel free to send us a message on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, or at NostalgiaBeDamnedPod at gmail.com. And please, 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 as always, share this with a friend. Let them know that two idiots do a podcast that... That's not really funny. They make fart jokes. One of them can't read. And then also, please, <laughs> please, please, please write us a review. It really, really helps us uh, anytime you write a review for us. I read them to Brandon because, again, dude can't read. I cannot read. That is a, that is a fact. Bummer. Sad but true. <sighs> well, continue to stay safe. Be good people. and uh... Wear a fucking mask. You could be nice about it. Wear a goddamn fucking mask. That's better. Thank you.